Let's turn in our Bibles then to Hebrews 11, where I'd like to take as our passage for study this evening, verses 8 to 19. Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 19. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back in a figure. And thus far the reading of God's word. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, you remember, is the Hall of Fame of Faith. And throughout this chapter, the author of Hebrews illustrates the nature of faith that he has emphasized in verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. And we've had three illustrations of that, actually four. The first is, by faith we believe that God created the world from nothing. And we studied that previously. <coughs> But then in our last lesson, we saw the three personal illustrations from the Old Testament of men of faith. Can you tell me who they were without looking in your Bibles? Which three come to your mind right away as you think of this living, active faith? Abel? Noah. Noah. One in between? Enoch. Right. And then we come to the fourth illustration in our lesson tonight, Abraham who's often called the father of the faithful, and accordingly, it's uh, quite appropriate that the fullest description of any uh, faithfulness of an Old Testament saint is devoted to Abraham here in this chapter. Um, as you can see, a full uh, 12 verses in our um, versification given to Abraham's illustration of faith. The keynote of Abraham's life was a life of faith. Turn to Genesis 15, 6. If there was going to be one verse that um, sums up the life and the religious devotion of Abraham, this would be it. Genesis 15, 6. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham had faith in God, and that faith was reckoned for righteousness. This is explained by Paul in Romans, the fourth chapter, verse 5. Romans 4, verse 5. There the Apostle Paul tells us, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Verse 3 had said, For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So Paul takes this as his theme, uh, teaching justification by faith over against the um, abhorrent teaching of the Judaizers. Abraham, the father of the faithful. Uh, this is a 
key theme in Romans, the fourth chapter, as you would be able to tell from the passage we just read, but also look at verses 11 and 12. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Notice his emphasis, he is the father of all those, Jew and Gentile alike, circumcised, uncircumcised alike, who have faith and walk in his steps of faith. Verse 16, for this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Those who are saved by faith see Abraham as their father. He is, he is the top of the column. He is the one who describes the category for us. He is the paradigm for the believer's life, the father of the faithful. Look at Galatians 3, verses 9 and 29. Galatians, the third chapter, verses 9 and 29. There Paul writes, So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Those who have faith as Abraham did and are justified are the offspring of Abraham, spiritually speaking. And the opposite is also true. Those who do not have the faith of Abraham cannot be counted as his children. John the 8th chapter, verses 31 and following. One of the better known confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees in the New Testament. John 8 at the 31st verse. Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, now listen, we are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone, how is it that you say you shall become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son does remain forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore also do the things which you... Therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if, Abraham's, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceed, proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. And so the confrontation goes on. They say, look, we're Abraham's children. And then next they say, we're children of God. Jesus says, no, you're not. You're not offspring of Abraham. If you were, you'd act like Abraham, nor are you offspring of God the Father because then you would act godly and you'd receive me as his son. You are, in fact, of your father, the devil. And then you act in a devilish way. And so here you have the great contrast. All those who have faith, who obediently follow the word of God, they are the offspring of Abraham. Those who are the literal, are the physical offspring of Abraham, but do not have Abraham's faith, are really of their father, the devil. So the Bible draws a rather clear watershed then. Um, who qualifies as a child of Abraham? Only the one who lives the faith of Abraham, the father of us all. So Hebrews 11 quite naturally gives a great deal of attention in the hall of fame of faith to Abraham, who is the father of the faithful. And we learn that Abraham exemplifies the fact that true trust in God is manifest in decisive action and obedience. We've got it backwards. In our day and age, we think that faith in God is manifest by what we say, by our profession, by what might be called a decisional Christianity. I made a decision for Jesus. 
I walked down the aisle at an altar call. I uh, prayed the sinner's prayer. I signed the card. I joined the church, whatever it may be. And we think that makes us Christians. The Bible teaches that true trust in God, true faith, true saving faith is manifest in decisive action and obedience. Look at the very first verse of our reading tonight, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Those four words really um, help us bring together what is seen by many theologians as a, a really a non-negotiable and non-resolvable conflict between Paul and James, where Paul is supposedly one who teaches that faith all by itself apart from works justifies, and James tells us that we are actually justified by works, and there's supposed to be this conflict that cannot be uh, brought together. The author of Hebrews didn't see it that way. Abraham, the father of the faithful, is the, uh, what he exemplifies according to this verse is that by faith he obeys. He decisively acts in obedience to God. And that's the point that James wants to make in the second chapter of his epistle. He uses Abraham as a grand example of faith. He uses one other example in that chapter. Tell me who it is from the Old Testament. James 2 looks to Abraham and to Rahab. Exactly. James um, really uh, has a way of putting striking words down. You know, first of all, Abraham is justified by works, and you know, we're expecting him to say something like Abraham is justified by faith, and so we understand what faith really means in Abraham's case. But then he goes on to Rahab, who is justified of all things for sending the spies out another way for doing something which we would say was not even morally justifiable, but she is justified before God. Nevertheless, Abraham in the book of James, um, who is the father of the faithful, exemplifies decisive action, a faith which works rather than a faith that is dead. I think I told you before that uh, when we get candidates before our presbytery who have difficulty with the doctrine of justification by faith and how works fits into all this, um, I often ask them a simple question that seems to kind of break through the loggerheads intellectually for them. I think it's a shame we wait to the theological exam for this to get worked out, but you know, they, they'll struggle, and of course they'll hit by questions both ways, no matter how they answer, if they try to separate faith and works, which is often what happens, and so often I will just ask, um, can a man be justified by dead faith? Well, no. Well, he must be justified by living faith then, right? Correct. Living faith is what? Obedient faith. Doesn't seem all the difficult, does it? Now, according to verse 8 of Hebrews 11, Abraham not only exemplifies obedience as the mark of faith, that he really trusts God, and so he does what he is told by God, but Abraham responded immediately to the call of God. He responded Without hesitation, the English translations that we have don't often pick this nuance up from the Greek, but the grammatical construction in Greek suggests uh, words like this, while being called, he went out. As one commentator puts it, with God's word yet ringing in his ear, Abraham was up and obe obedient. God had uh, no sooner called Abraham than he was off his chair and out doing what God told him to do. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He responded immediately, and notice this, even though he did not know where he was to go. If Abraham were a man that had no family, if Abraham were a man who had no possessions. If Abraham were a man who had no social standing and reputation, we might be able to understand Abraham getting up and leaving. But you see, you have to understand, Abraham was a well-known man in Ur of the Chaldees. He had a very large family and body of servants. He was extremely wealthy and influential. He was the landed aristocracy of Ur. 
And yet God called him to go, and he got up and left, and he left all of this earthly stability and permanence and security not knowing where he was supposed to go. That's the example of faith. Calvin puts it this way, it's no ordinary trial of faith to give up what we have in hand in order to seek what is afar off and unknown to us. That's no ordinary trial of faith, to give up what we have in hand. You see, we have a hard enough time, don't we, believing with the things in hand that God will add to us. Abraham had to give up what he had in hand and believe, without knowing where he was going, that God would take care of him nonetheless. What's verse 1 say? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Abraham couldn't see where he was going. He didn't know how God was going to take care of his family, his reputation, his earthly privileges. But he trusted God, and as God was yet speaking, the Bible suggests he was up and leaving. God's word was warrant enough for Abraham to respond to the promise of God. I think it's interesting that so often in the Bible, obedience for us is not simply an act of doing an imperative. God says, do this, then we're supposed to get up and do it. But in most every case, you will find that obedience in the Bible amounts to our trusting and laying hold of the promises of God. Basically, God says, I've promised to do something for you. Trust me, I'll do it. That's what obedience amounts to, trusting God. And so, the, if, if you will, you can look at obedience in a very works-righteousness orientation, but the Bible presents obedience as, um, as also the response of faith and hope in the promises of God. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And then verse 9 tells us the insult. Abraham gave up everything in the earth Chaldees, immediately responds to the promise of God, gets up and obeys God and leaves, not knowing where he's going, and when he got there, he didn't get what he was told. It's very convicting for your pastor to read this, because you know what you have to realize? Is that when we obey God's promises, We've been put to the test. Our trust in him has been tried. And then God puts us through another one. He tries us again. He says, oh, do you really believe me? Do you really trust me? You got up and you left Abraham not knowing where you were going. And now that you're here, it would have been one thing for Abraham then to have some earthly manifestation and satisfaction that he had done the right thing and the promises of God were realized. And they weren't realized even then. Do you have the same problem I do? We expect that if we obey God, that we're going to see some kind of immediate response, and we'll be vindicated that we weren't fools, we didn't, you know, go out there on a risk and find out that we were uh, all by ourselves, that God really validated the things we did. And lo and behold, God says, no, I want to trust you. Do you, tr do you believe that you did the right thing, even though I don't give you that earthly vindication right now? And so Abraham, by faith, lived as an alien in the land of promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. What an insult. This is the land of promise. Abraham arrives in Palestine. This is all his. And he lives like an alien there, in tents, as a nomad, owning nothing. So once he arrived in the land of promise, he sojourned as if it were a foreign land to him. It was supposed to belong to him. God said, live here like it's a foreign land. And he did not receive the land as a possession, but lived like an alien or transient with any, without any flame on ownership. In the speech that Stephen gives before the Sanhedrin, before they kill him for his words, in Acts 7, verse 5, he refers to this uh, feature of Abraham's faith. Verse 4, speaking of the call of Abraham. Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which you are now living. And he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. You know, of course, the grand insult of it. Abraham didn't, as Stephen says here, he didn't own even a foot of ground. 
And when Sarah died, what did Abraham have to do? In the promised land that was his inheritance, he had to go to the pagan neighbors round about and buy a cave in which to bury her. And there in the book of Genesis, it's recorded that Abraham said, I am but a sojourner on the land. This is the land of promise. It belongs to me, but I'm but a sojourner. To all the outward appearances, he was a mere migrant. He was not the permanent inhabitant of the land. And I think this must have been an even more severe trial of Abraham's faith than his leaving Ur of the Chaldees in the first place. Upon reaching the apparent goal of his obedient faith, he found that it was still not yet. Often in your own experience, my Christian friends, you'll say, it is yet not. God hasn't brought it about yet. In fact, if you read through the Bible, if you understand the story of the Bible, I think that's the recurring theme for the people of God. Their faith is tried because it's always not yet. And even with the coming of Jesus into the world, you know, we celebrate the incarnation, the promise has arrived, but even then we have to go through the experience of not yet. The kingdom is established, but not yet culminated. There is still tension. There are still trials and temptations. There is still persecution. The kingdom grows slowly. There's opposition. We look to yet another day when Jesus will return to purify all things and culminate and perfect his kingdom. So from cover to cover, the experience of the people of God is the living faith not yet fulfilled. The promise of God not yet. Instead of being tempted to go back, however, to Ur of the Chaldees, Abraham looked beyond this impermanent world to an unseen, eternal blessing which God had prepared for him. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promises in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. I know my own weakness. If I had been in Abraham's position, I would have sat down and started wondering, where did I turn wrong? This cannot be what God had intended. And we'd start, I'd start looking at the present circumstances and trying to analyze them. In what way is God going to work this out? So that, no, Abraham didn't stand still and look at his present circumstances. He said, obviously, the promise is future. Obviously, what God intended is not this land at all. This is but a pointer. This is but typical of what he's really going to give me when the city that has foundations is granted to me. This, of course, is what we should do as well. We need to remember the faith of Abraham. 1 Corinthians uh, 2.9. 1 Corinthians But just as it is written, things which eye has not yet seen, and ear has not yet heard, and which has, which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Look at uh, Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed us. That is to say that when we struggle with the life of faith now, we understand there's yet a glorious life ahead. And that, you know, eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard, and it's not even entered into our minds. We cannot even conceive the glory and the blessedness of that day that is yet to come. And we have to labor. If we're going to labor faithfully and persevere in the Christian faith, we have to labor in light of that coming day. And say, I don't worry about the sufferings right now. I don't worry about the setbacks and the lack of uh, uh, fulfillment of God's promise in the, in the temporal experience of this earthly existence. Because God has a much more glorious and grand day yet where he's going to show the fulfillment of his promises. The land of Palestine then, for Abraham, could be no more than a pointer to the solid reality which would be the fulfillment of God's promise. Abraham was far-sighted by faith. That's the slogan I'd like to preach on. So far-sighted by faith. Look at verse 10. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect 
and builder is God. Abraham looked ahead to the city of God, from which, of course, Augustine got the title of his most famous treatise, The City of God. We need a city that has foundations made by God. The expression used here in uh, the book of Hebrews points to God as the designer or craftsman on the one hand and the constructor and creator of the city on the other. In my translation, I have architect and builder. Close figures of speech. The idea is that God is the craftsman, God is also the one who creates the city. Technically, the word is, this would be significant for those of you who have studied Plato or classical Greek, he is the demiurge. He is the one who brings it all about. He crafts the city for us. The city of God is the city of God. Well, that stands for reason, doesn't it? Stop and think about that. This is the city of God. It is not an achievement of the civilizing efforts of man. It's not a temple city on this earth at all. The city of God cannot be achieved by man's civilizing efforts. And we live, you know, presently in the midst of a political campaign, which always gives us an opportunity to hear the rhetoric of politicians, especially the rhetoric of liberalism, that suggest that if we could just become more decent toward one another, that this world's problems would go away. The civilizing efforts of men, however, will not create an earthly paradise, will not bring about the city of God. Only God can bring that city. God is the maker of the city. He gives it foundations so that it will stand. It's one of um, my favorite biblical themes, in fact, the theme of the city of God, and we can't go into it in detail tonight, but let me just give you some hints for further study on your own. The Bible teaches us that God has prepared a heavenly city for his saints. Look at verse 16 in our chapter. But as it is they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. In chapter 12, verse 22, the city is called the heavenly Jerusalem. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. In chapter 13, verse 14, we read, For we, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. God has prepared a heavenly Jerusalem which is to come, according to the book of Hebrews. Paul speaks in Galatians, the fourth chapter, I won't look that up to save time, but in Galatians 4, verses 25 and 26, he speaks of the Jerusalem which is above, and he calls it the metropolis, literally. That, you know what the Greek word metropolis means? Meteropolis means mother city. He speaks of the metropolis which is above, the mother city, the Jerusalem above. And in Revelation 3, verse 12, let's look that one up, as well as in Revelation 21, John speaks of a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Revelation, the third chapter, at verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And then, of course, in Revelation 21, which you can read on your own, John actually sees the new Jerusalem descending from heaven. There is a heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, which yet will be established and uh, will be our dwelling place. John 14, 12, Jesus promises that he goes to prepare a place for us because in his Father's house are many mansions. He says, are you not sure of this? Didn't you know that if I go away to do that, I'll come and get you again? A very tender passage. Jesus says, there is a city of God and you've got a mansion there. And I'm going to make sure it's all ready for you when you get there. When you get there. 
Okay, so you can study that more on your own, but I'm fascinated by that. Throughout the Bible, this theme that there is a city God has prepared for his people. Now, in verse 11 of Hebrews 11, Sarah is incorporated along with Abraham. By faith, even Sarah herself. In a sense, Sarah, if, if Abraham's the father of the faithful, Sarah, in some ways, is considered the, um, the mother of the faithful in the Bible. I know in, in our opposition to women's liberation, that may great on us, but it is a biblical theme. Look at Isaiah 51, verse 2. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain, when he was one I called him, then I blessed him and multiplied him. Abraham and Sarah are put together as far as being father and mother uh, to God's people. Um, then Galatians 4, verses 22 and 23, which we didn't look at a moment ago, but now we will. Galatians 4, 22 and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This contains an allegory or a figure. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. And this corresponds, of course, to Sarah in the contrast between Sarah and Hagar that Paul is drawing in Galatians 4. Then one more passage, 1 Peter 3, verse 6. 1 Peter 3, 6. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And so uh, those women, godly women who fathered, followed the example of Sarah are the children of Sarah in the same way that those who followed the faith of Abraham are the children of Abraham. Yes? Doesn't it seem as if Mother Hebrew is giving Sarah credit for quite a bit more faith than we read about? wonders if the author of Hebrews does not distort the Old Testament text and uh, give more credit to Sarah than she really deserves. A question that your teacher anticipated. I'm coming to that in just a minute. But first, the expression in Hebrews 11 is a little bit awkward, and we need to deal with this. By faith, even Sarah herself received, and then you have this expression translated in the New American Standard, ability to conceive. The difficulty is that literally the Greek reads she received ability to pass down seed, which is, a euphemism for she had the ability, she gained the ability which literally interpreted as the male act in intercourse <coughs> rather than her. So now we have a problem. What do you do with this? And of course, some vicious liberals would just excise Sarah from the text altogether and say this is what <laughs> the problem with that approach, not only is that it's unfaithful to the Word of God, but just from an academic standpoint. You have to ask, the scribe who inserted Sarah's name here, how did he make that big a mistake? Was he just going through dropping the name of Sarah any place that he wanted and not realize that he made a sentence that didn't make sense? So that's not really the approach to take. Some people have said the seed referred to here, which often the rabbis did, refers to the ovum as well as the, the sperm of the male, and therefore she received the ability to give ovum, to give an egg that might be fertilized, Others have said, and rightly so, that the construction in Greek might be missing iota uh, subscripts, which is one possibility, and therefore it's a dative constructive, and you would read it that Sarah, with Abraham, received the ability to have children, is what it amounts to. But I think probably the best way to take it is to understand that the verb doesn't always refer to the actual uh, conceiving of children by the male giving the sperm, the verb also means to establish something, and to establish a seed is an expression meaning to establish a posterity. And I think that's probably what the author of Hebrews means here. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to establish a posterity even beyond the proper time. Uh, 
literally, when she was past age, when Sarah had reached a menopause and was quite beyond it, she still received the ability to establish a posterity. But was Sarah truly an example of faith in God's promise? Now we come back to Elry's critical question here. Because after all, Genesis informs us that when she overheard God tell Abraham in their tent that he was going to have a son, not through Hagar, but through Sarah, the Bible says she laughed to herself. And God knew she was laughing inside. And so he asked, why does Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for God? And Sarah is embarrassed. We know she's embarrassed because she denies that she laughed. And God says, yes, you did. You did laugh. And by the way, interesting, that, that's, all, that, that's the encounter. You read it in Genesis, God says, yes, you did laugh, Sarah. <laughs> okay. What is the name of the child that is born? Yitzhak, which means in Hebrew, laughter. <laughs> that's great. But now what do we do with this? The author of Hebrews turns this into an example of Sarah's faith. There's two ways to deal with it. I'll tell you which I prefer. I don't think I'm going to get everyone to agree with this, but um, I have been thoughtful about it. Two ways to take it are that Sarah began doubtful about the promises of God. She laughed in disbelief. Then she heard God's reassuring word that he was omnipotent. Is anything too hard for God? And that she came to faith. And that's what we should be able to do. In, in the face of conflicting evidence and situation that would even be laughable, when God utters his promise, then we believe it. Okay, so that, that is probably the most standard way of understanding how the author of Hebrews says this, even though Genesis says Sarah didn't initially show a lot of faith. I want to suggest another approach, that Sarah's faith was not an example of disbelief at all. That, uh, I mean, Sarah's laughter was not an example of disbelief. And one of the, uh, I know that sounds a little bit off the wall, but in Genesis 17, 17, I want you to notice the first time Abraham was told this, he laughed too. And he's not rebuked for that. I want to suggest that there are different kinds of laughter. Yeah, there are. There's the laughter of ridicule and disbelief. Ha ha, what a joke. This can't be for sure. I mean, come on, get real with me. Laughing in disbelief. But you know, sometimes we laugh too because we laugh in wonderment and amazement. Sometimes I've been blessed in ways that make me chuckle. Not because I don't believe it, it's because it's almost too good to be true. And we laugh. We feel uncomfortable in the presence of something that outstanding. I think, if you'll stop and think about it, you probably have that experience. You kind of, you know, Sarah is overhearing this conversation, I'm going to have a child, and she believes it, and yet says, I'm, I'm past the age of going to have children. This is too wonderful for words. And she chuckles at that. And then she's embarrassed to see that that's the response she had, and she denies it. But that the laughter, the name of Isaac, was not a permanent mark of Sarah's disbelief in sin, but was in fact God saying, Sarah, I really appreciate the fact that you found my promises almost too good to be true, and you chuckled at that. That's another approach to it, and I know many people would say I'm twisting the text, but I think there's something to that psychologically, that her laughter was not ridiculing God, who was saying, wow, can this really be what God will do for me. Okay, going on with the text of Hebrews here, hurriedly, we see that in verse 12 there was a really a double um, amazing feature, or there were two amazing features to this situation. Abraham and Sarah were both as good as dead. By the way, Romans 4, verses 18 and 19 uses the same expression. Abraham considered himself as good as dead. Have you ever, I've known, I know that experience. Sometimes I just feel like I'm about dead, you know, because of my health problems and so forth. But Abraham was an old man. And Abraham wasn't proud. He wasn't one of these guys trying to get out there and compete with the teenagers and so forth. He knew he was about as good as dead. And God comes and says, here's what's going to happen to you. So that's first thing that's amazing, but the second thing is from one man sprung forth what? Offspring as numerous as the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky. Too numerous to count. But of course the promise is fulfilled much further, much more uh, or beyond the physical offspring of Abraham 
the promise is fulfilled in those who are of the faith of Abraham. Galatians 3, remember, says that those who are of faith are the seed of Abraham. In the book of Revelation, chapter 7, we read that they will be too numerous to count. They will be innumerable, those who have the faith of Abraham. In verses 13 and 14, we see that it's precisely in the hour of death, when all hope seems outwardly to be frustrated, that faith prevails. All these died in faith. Of course, they didn't die, faith didn't bring about their death. The point is that they died in the attitude and posture of faith. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. Abraham and others, probably Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are intended as those referred to here. Abraham and others are described as not having received what was promised. And in that kind of situation, death would surely have been a mockery of their faith in God's promise of an everlasting possession if they were expecting that Palestine was all that he had in mind. Faith meant penetrating beyond this present world and concentrating on a hope which is eternal. And so having gone through his entire life, not receiving the promises in any earthly way, Abraham yet dies in faith. Because Abraham says, well, of course, I'm just now entering into the promised land. Accordingly, Abraham is said to have seen the promises and greeted, and greeted them from afar. Remember verse 1? Faith is the conviction of things not yet seen. And so he died in faith, not seeing it, but greeting the promise from afar. But you know, it's interesting in the Bible, and this is worthy of more time than I have tonight to elaborate on, but the farsightedness of Abraham's faith was both horizontal and vertical. Because Jesus tells us in John the 8th chapter, verse 56, that Abraham rejoiced to see my day, Jesus' day, and he saw it. Abraham looked ahead to the day of Jesus Christ, which day in history would establish that transcendent hope in the promised land of God that he was looking forward to even at the time of his death. And so Abraham, in a sense, was farsighted looking up looking for a heavenly city, but he was also far-sighted vertically, looking ahead to the day of Jesus Christ that would establish that for him. Abraham and the others thus confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Uh, we see this um, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, that we are sojourners on this earth. Peter tells us in chapter 1, verse 1 of this epistle, in verse 7, that we are exiles on the earth, sojourners. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. That song is uh, quite true to New Testament theology. According to the Bible, the faithful of old were seeking a homeland, which is what we're supposed to do as Christians today, knowing that we are citizens of heaven, and we are yet to reach home. Philippians 3, verses 12, 13, and 20. Philippians 3, verses 12, 13, and 20. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize. And in verse 24, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so just like the saints of old, we are looking for a city. We are citizens of that city in heaven. And therefore, at present, we are but strangers and exiles on the earth. They were not thinking of a land like the one from which they went out. They were looking, the Bible says, for a better land, for a heavenly one. Verse 15. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Now, this disapprobation of any thought of returning in verse 15 
ties into the main theme of the epistle, if you stop and think about it. The temptation to shrink back from following Christ due to outward distresses. We read of that in chapters 3 and 4. The example of Israel in the wilderness could not press into the promised land because they shrunk back from the promises of God. Or chapter 10, verse 39. Let's look at that. For we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. Or chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Press on. Press on. Press on into the promised land. Don't shrink back from faith. Look unto Jesus and run the race before you. And so you see how significant Hebrews 11, um, 15 is. If the saints of old had been looking for the wrong kind of country, they could have had opportunity to return. But there is no returning, verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. And in these wonderful words, therefore God is not ashamed to call, to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The greatest blessing for those who persevere in this way is that God is not ashamed to be called their God. I wonder if it ever breaks your heart if it breaks mine, the way in which I bring really blasphemy upon the name of God by the way I behave. The ways in which we grieve the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us However, there is a lifestyle for which God is made not ashamed to be called our God. And it's the lifestyle of faith, persevering in obedience in the midst of distress. And we come to the uh, final and the grandest example of Abraham's faith, which was his willingness to sacrifice the only son of promise in response to an inscrutable command of God. God told Abraham, take this son, the only one that you have that can fulfill my promise to you, and sacrifice him to me. That was, of course, the most severe test of Abraham's life. Give yourself a half hour sometime. I mean, schedule it. Don't let the phone get in the way or the TV or the kids or anything. Just sit down sometime and for a half hour reflect on the psychological turmoil Abraham went through when having, against all hope, received the promise of God of a son, through Sarah, who was beyond age, God said, kill him, in obedience to me. Imagine the turmoil. It was staggering. God actually seemed to be making a demand which was contrary to his promise. God was, for all outward appearances, saying, you received the promised son, I'm taking him back. <clears throat> Imagine how much Abraham must have loved Isaac. And we all love our children. They're born. There's a tender place in our heart for our children. That was true of Abraham. But all the more in Abraham's case, Isaac was a special son. One that he really, from all earthly expectations, should not have had. One which was a sweet reminder of God's goodness and faithfulness to him. Can you imagine how sad he would have been if Isaac was killed in some other accidental way? But now, God was asking that Abraham be the one who takes his own son's life. And yet Abraham did not put God on trial. He once again showed that he was the father of the faithful, believing against all human hope, according to the word of God. God said Isaac would be the son of promise. God knows what he's doing, and Abraham obeyed. In fact, Hebrews tells us that Abraham reckoned God able to raise the dead. Now, that's not mentioned explicitly in the Genesis account, but I think perhaps it's hinted at in the answer given to the servants in Genesis 22.5. And the servants ask what Abraham's doing. He leaves them behind, and he goes off, remember? And he says, I and the son will return. And yet Abraham knew he was going up on that mount to sacrifice his son. 
So there may be a hint in that. The book of Hebrews tells us, figuratively speaking, Abraham did receive Isaac back from the dead because when he went up there to obey, Isaac was as good as dead to him. It's as if he were dead, and yet he came back alive. The church through all the ages has seen in this incident, of course, a foreshadowing of the work of Jesus Christ. Abraham's only son of promise, sacrificed, and then brought back from the dead. Of course, there's even more. It's kind of a, a, a double uh, foreshadowing because we also see the saving of Isaac and what? As Abraham is in the act of ready to kill him with the knife, God stops him from heaven and provides the substitute, the ram and the thicket in the place of Isaac. I want to close tonight with um, a really wonderful quotation. I don't often quote authors for you, but uh, I have these words from uh, Philip Edgecombe Hughes in his commentary on Hebrews, which I think are um, just fantastic. I want you to reflect on them as you remember Abraham and the lesson we've learned tonight. Dr. Hughes says, Abraham is a man of faith, held tenaciously to the conviction that what appeared to him to be an insoluble problem was for God no problem at all. Though everything else was obscure, one thing was clear to him, namely that God, whose word was unshakably true, had a way of resolving the problem which was as yet unrevealed. Like the Apostle Paul in a later age, Abraham was assured that it is precisely the powerlessness of man which provides the opportunity for the triumphant manifestation of the omnipotence of God. Abraham held tenaciously to the conviction that what appeared to him to be an insoluble problem was for God no problem at all. That's right. Lord Jesus, we ask that you, by your Spirit, would create in us a faith like unto Abraham, a faith that does not receive its nourishment or its guidance from outward appearances or human expectations, a faith that is not fueled by the power of human psychology and conviction, but rather a faith which is from above, a gift to trust you in the midst of all circumstances to trust the Word of God regardless of what men may say or how bad things look outwardly. To trust you so that we might obey immediately when you ask us to do things. To obey you even when it appears that we are but sojourners and strangers here and will not be vindicated on earth or receive the full measure of your promise to obey you even when it appears that the problems that we face are insoluble, knowing that for you, whatever you ask us to do presents no problem at all. Lord, take our powerlessness and our humility and our trust in you and make it, in the case of each and every one of us, an opportunity to display your omnipotence.